0: to the Navigating Interdisciplinarity podcast series brought to you by the IAC ECN. I'm Maria Geroules. I'm an agricultural economist studying large-scale social ecological systems for agriculture for my doctoral thesis at the University of Bonn. I'm Hita Onikrishnan.
1: I work with Urban Lakes in my city of Bangalore for my postdoc at Sheffield and my visiting faculty position at Azim Trimji University in Bangalore. As always, we host for the day.
0: When I started my masters, after having majored in economics, I suddenly found myself having to learn plant sciences as a language because I was working with, guess what? Plant breeders. And, you know, then I had to answer these questions like what is a double haploid plant, you know? And being able to spot them in a field. And then I also had to be actually capable of asking smart questions about them, right?
1: Yeah, or it could be the other way around. I had to learn to speak the languages of the social science after having spent most of my life learning to talk to biological sciences. I had to learn that certain commonplace words may be loaded, or I had to recognize that what I've assumed all my life to be objective science was actually both subjective and highly political.
0: Okay, so let's let's do it. See, if you work beyond your original disciplinary training, you need to be able to speak different languages. And it is a little bit like both of us walking into Argentina and having to learn Spanish to do things Absolutely. effectively. To help us speak our interdisciplinary Spanish better, on this podcast for today, we have Dane Whitaker with us, who will introduce our guests. Mm-hmm.
2: Thank you for joining us today. This is the Working Within Disciplinary Settings as an Interdisciplinary Scientist episode of the Navigating Interdisciplinary podcast. I'm Dane Whitaker, a PhD student at the School of Sustainability um, at Arizona State University, and today joining me we have uh, Vanessa Castanbrotto. Um, she's a professor of Climate Urbanism at the Urban Institute at Sheffield University, and Ginny Vanos, professor of climate and health in the School of Sustainability at Arizona State University. Welcome, y'all.
3: Hello, good morning. Hello, good morning.
2: Good to have y'all here, and thank you so much for joining us. To get started, we have a couple questions about you as a scientist. Do you describe yourself as an interdisciplinary scientist, Vanessa?
4: So generally, yes, but it would depend on who I'm talking with and what the context is. Maybe sometimes it's not necessarily to do so, but uh, somehow I have the assumption that A lot of people are interdisciplinary scientists, whether they call themselves interdisciplinary or not. Disciplines, in the end, what they are, are institutions, right? And institutions change and are variables. so It depends how you define those institutions. Disciplines are constantly changing. So even working, you may think you're working within a discipline, but you are being very interdisciplinary without even noticing. But I would say that for most scientists who engage with real-life problems, interdisciplinarity is a necessity. For example, the processes of urban change in a city without really looking at things that you didn't expect to look at at the beginning. And more recently, I've discovered, so I always thought, oh, I'm interdisciplinary because I work on real life problems. But actually, more recently, I discovered that I was reading this philosopher, Alfred North Whitehead, that to my shame, I had not read yet. He actually argues that to be a good thinker, you have to be diverse in your reading and you have to engage with a lot of sorts of knowledge. He takes ancient philosophers as an inspiration because they were inspired by many different things. So it may also be that disciplines themselves are constructed in a way of looking at knowledge, which is interdisciplinary in itself. So yeah, in summary, disciplines are only institutions that change and actually perhaps they are more recent
3: in their conception than we tend to think
2: Jenny, would you describe yourself as interdisciplinary?
3: Yeah, I think I would definitely identify myself as an interdisciplinary scientist. I think that there are certain times we're doing very discipline-specific work. But specifically, I think for what I'm doing, it's, it's almost impossible to not be interdisciplinary. Like Vanessa said, if you're working on a real-world issue and you really want to solve that, you really end up becoming interdisciplinary without even thinking about it and having to jump into other worlds and learn new knowledge, often on your own if you're not in some kind of program that is supporting learning across disciplines. Even in my undergrad, I don't think I bottled myself into one discipline because I was learning in environmental sciences, which is made up of so many different disciplines.
2: And so you're a professor of climate and health. So even in your title, you've decided to put two different disciplines together.
3: Definitely. My background is in environmental sciences, as I mentioned, and in my PhD, the focus was on atmospheric science at the micro scale. That's where I really started to jump into more of the health side, because all of my research questions tended to be about what does it mean for a person at, um, let's say the micro scale in a city to be experiencing this microclimate and then how might that microclimate change in the future? And so you have these various scales thinking about climate change to cities, and then you have a person. And to understand that health aspect and what it means to people, I had to start learning that space. And I loved it, but it wasn't what I was necessarily trained in. So that's kind of how it all began. And then from there, continued down this path. You know, in my postdoc, I was working on epidemiology, which is large scale data on cities, and got to learn how those methods work, and then got to kind of go back down to the human scale as I progressed as a professor in my field. I like to think about, you know, every time I'm working on a project or asking a research question, it's always at this intersection of weather and climate and then what different exposures mean to health at different scales. And then, of course, there's different types of people. And that gets into different disciplines as well. You can go from working with vulnerable populations to working with athletes in in my work, for example, because we're really focused on extreme heat. And as we move forward, it just becomes actually more fun because you have more types of people Working on these problems.
2: Super cool. So Vanessa, it sound as, sounds like Jenny's career path has been defined by these changing scales and different projects that allows her to work on different disciplines. How would you describe your research? And did you have kind of a similar experience, or did maybe your interdisciplinarity um, develop in a different way?
4: I'm not sure if I've been disciplinary in any way ever. I I never belonged to any discipline. My undergrad was on engineering, natural resources engineering. And I did this thesis, which was the hydrological modeling in in a city in Bolivia, in Tarija. And it, it combined hydrological modeling with economic valuation. So that was already kind of out there in the degree I was doing, which was a very traditional style of studying engineering. And when I went to do my master's, I I was very interested in this kind of water technologies. And then I thought, let me see how they have been applied in Spain and where where I'm from. And then I started to get very interested in the history of them. And I opened the box of political ecology somewhere. So that uh, brings you into a whole complete dimension. And I thought, my God, I haven't understood the most fundamental thing with all this modeling. So I left that behind and I became a bit of a lover of archives. But when I went to do my PhD, which was about risk, I I got paid to look at how risk is uh, accepted by communities in Bosnia. Then I found that neither of my skills were useful there. And what I needed to do was to talk with people, learn participatory skills. And then I started to call myself a sociologist of engineering, acknowledging this engineering background which I didn't want to leave behind. Since then, since I finished my PhD in the last 10 years, I have been navigating all kinds of spaces. In a way, wherever I felt I had a contribution to make. For me, it's been more important. It's like, what, is, what do I have to say and to whom? Rather than what is the last fashion in whatever discipline? Which anyway, is a construction. So it's always going to be imagined by somebody, somebody with more power or with less power. Me, as an academic, I also have the power to think What are, what is the important debate for me, and I've tried to engage with those. For me, like the people working in, in human geography have been has been the field more important for me because of the kind of things I felt I had to say about how cities are formed, how publics are formed, how participation can be incorporated, how decisions can be made or not, and how colonial and historical legacies affect us.
2: Cool. It sounds like methods were... one way that you've kind of tried different areas from models to archives to interviews and participatory research. It's really cool to hear from both of you and kind of hear how you go through
1: I was listening to both of you and you were talking about how disciplines are institutions. And I was wondering if you could sort of tell us a little bit about what your thinking was in describing disciplines as institutions. And would you think of interdisciplinarity as some sort of institutional interplay and what that really means for the practice of doing interdisciplinary research?
4: When I was doing my PhD or finalizing it, I had the opportunity to do a summer school on ecological economics, chaired by an economist from Norway called Aril and I went to three of those and they were transformative for me because everybody was very engaged with this interdisciplinary issue. But it was a little influence that we started to think about it in an interdisciplinary way. And I say we because it was not just me, but some colleagues I met there, especially Maya Hislason and Melv. But there were many people there who influenced me and continue to influence me today. I think that everybody there were very interdisciplinary. And when we were discussing with Maya and Melf, we realized that the disciplinary institutions that for us seem a bit outdated actually held a lot of power on the lives of people because of the way they shape your career. So for example, if you want to make your argument for promotion, you have to demonstrate that you're making a contribution to a certain discipline and publishing in a certain type of journals. So there are academics that only publish in three or four journals in their careers, right? And they have to be the three or four journals that their discipline deems to be correct. This depends on where you are in the world because there are some academic worlds that are more disciplinary than others. But in general, what we discovered in, in that work that we, that those discussions that we did together, that of course we translated those good academics into a paper, which all of you can read, it's in environmental science and policy. We, we described, uh, we, we discovered that problem that in as institutions stand, People with an advanced career on uh, environmental research or social environmental research or socio-ecological research, they, they see their disciplinary practice as something that ultimately refers and is not independent from their disciplinary experiences. And that's why we say interdisciplinarity emerges at the interplay between disciplines. Over time, I think this is a very accurate description of. My own experience has been very similar. You always have to remember that there are these disciplines that people will refer to and adapt your discourse to those audiences. But on the other hand, there's also a part of me that thinks that uh,
3: truly interdisciplinary science is possible. And maybe we see that developing now. There are these interesting disciplinary institutions, or sometimes you also hear in certain spaces people saying you're siloed. You might be siloed into one space or it's very hard to work across silos is is also something said and and people are referring to of course your department which is in a discipline and it's to keep things structured in a university setting and manage budgets and and things like that so it's it's good to understand why also sometimes we have these silos or specific institutions of disciplinarity, but then also figure out, well, I mean, if what I do has to work across these silos and that's how I'm going to make a difference with my work, then I'm going to figure out a way to do it. And in most places, that's not tough to do. No one's going to stop me from reaching out to an economist and saying, hey, let's try and tackle this challenge. And honestly, one of the best parts of working in academia is that freedom to be able to ask your own research questions and then figure out a way to study it, you often think, okay, what don't I know first? We're trained to think, what don't I know? And where's my knowledge gap? And then you can figure out who might I want to work with, who are nice people to work with. And again, really nice part of our job. We kind of get to choose who we want to work with. But then going back to what Vanessa said... There's always this kind of cloud above you saying, but you must fit in this box to get tenure or to get promotion. That is so ingrained in academia. It's tough to, to shift. That's where knowing, okay, first, what was I hired to do, hired to teach, hired you know, to, to be and making sure you're doing that and how you can describe how this new interdisciplinary project fits in there. Then when you go to write your statement, for your tenure um, or promotion, you are able to articulate that well and still fit this kind of disciplinary box, but also be able to do your interdisciplinary research.
2: So it sounds like both of you have made a deliberate choice throughout your careers to move away from these silos and move away from these like institutions that have so much power over a lot of academics. Have you had to work within a disciplinary setting before?
4: Then, sorry to say, but I would say I've a deliberate choice to be interdisciplinary. Perhaps uh, I can identify the moments in which I suddenly discovered or had to do, uh, like I had a bifurcation. I had to choose a path that was interdisciplinary. But that thing that we call a choice is not really a choice because as an academic, you have to do whatever, thing what your heart asks you to do. It's like, if you think something is important, uh, moving towards studying what you think is going to advance your career and leaving what you think is important on the side is going to harm you in the long term. Because being emotionally engaged with your research is vital to maintain a long-term trajectory. So being passionate and putting the time and the interest and bringing your topic with you without hating it, requires you to do things that you like and that you believe in. The other issue is that when you choose, when you say, oh, everybody's doing this kind of, what kind of things? So, so at some point in my career, everybody was doing uh, GIS. In those very old times, it was with uh, the very old ArcInfo, And we all went and did this, like before I did my PhD, we all went to do this uh, six-week course in which we updated our skills and then some people went to try to model with that but so many people at some point were doing doing it that uh, they didn't have a kind of a unique selling point let's say so if you start to do what seems to be very popular because you think it's popular you may find yourself in a pool very large pool of people with the same skills so I would say it's not about a conscious choice it's about really engaging with the problems that you think are the most important and do them to the best of your
3: abilities. And I think that should lead you to good results. I feel like we've all found ourselves sitting in a very discipline-specific room, and you might kind of be the oddball out and be thinking in different ways. And that's fun. (laughs) We've all been into these discipline-specific settings, you know, if we're hired into a department. We, we end up kind of there unless the department is super broad and interdisciplinary and, and supporting people working across these silos. I can think of a few examples where it's important to acknowledge the discipline heavy focus of a situation you're in. Let's say applying for a research grant, you're applying to a certain program. That program is going to be largely specific to a certain discipline or if you make your proposal interdisciplinary, they're going to start identifying this investigator does this, and this investigator does this, and this investigator does this. That seems hardwired in a way into people. It's your job writing the proposal to show those the intersectionality between those people. Or if you are someone who has knowledge across disciplines to highlight that as well, whether it's through your writing through showing your publications, you also get into these silo disciplinary times when you're maybe publishing. If you go look at some of the highest ranked journals, they're very discipline specific. The interdisciplinary journals, at least as they are now, they're still lagging behind on impact factor and what makes them a stronger journal. That doesn't mean they're not a strong journal. It means that their metrics look like maybe they're not as strong of a journal because interdisciplinary, as far as I understand from editors, just aren't cited as much because people like to cite within their discipline. So Vanessa said there's three economic journals, people like to be citing those, which is great. But it's important to understand when you're publishing in a very discipline specific journal or an interdisciplinary journal who your audience is who you're talking to because you will run into a reviewer who doesn't like that you're writing differently than they would expect for the journal or for their discipline reading the scope of the journal and looking what they've published and who else has published there and are they accepting of translating across discipline? but you're still going to hit those really discipline specific journals that you might really want to publish in and that's totally fine because you're still going to make a big impact with that just maybe on on your own discipline or you can start sending it to other people outside of your discipline I publish here and it's just being aware of these things being aware of what you're doing who your reviewers could be so I think those are a couple situations where disciplinarity is going to be present and then you have to navigate it I mean I also find
0: myself in situations where I'm writing a proposal that somewhere, for my case, right, between plant breeding and economics, it's at this intersection, and then you get evaluators from, from both sides, and one disciplinary evaluator does not understand the language of the other? So um,
4: this is not my experience, uh, neither for proposals nor for papers. It may be also because of the range of places where I publish or where I get funded. Actually, I see that uh, in funding and uh, institutions in, in Europe, interdisciplinarity is highly valued. A reviewer who would be very disciplinarian, and this I'm talking from having been in committees, wouldn't be taking so seriously somebody who is not able to read that proposal across i'm talking of the european union for example the uk or sweden or places where where i've been involved in reviewing proposals and where i've got something from and the same with journals i think there are some journals that are very disciplinary i agree with that there's also a wide range of journals and if your paper is really good it actually gets a lot of circulation even if it's not in those journals and you'll be You may not be published in number one journal or whatever. Your paper may still have a lot of circulation. The problem is that sometimes are the institutions themselves that are putting those disciplinary barriers. So I know this is the case, for example, in the scientific system in Spain. What happens there is that you get uh, ranked on your academic production depending on the quartile that you are publishing in. And the journal you are publishing in is... But there's nothing about whether your paper is good or not. (laughs) It's only if you were lucky enough to have it in the right journal. And that's not the best way to evaluate things. And I think that will change. In summary, I would say that as an early career scholar, uh, maybe I'm very positive about how I see science changing. And that I'm always a very optimistic person. For me, I think one very positive way to look at this is to think that disciplines offer you shortcuts. So, for example, if you are very much within a discipline, and you publish within the journal of that discipline, it's true. Reviewers of that journal may look at your paper and say, oh yeah, I recognize all these citations, that's a shortcut. But if you do good scholarship, you shouldn't need that shortcut. You know, you can do your argumentation about why you think a question is important without necessarily having to do the same argumentation that all the people in that journal already would understand, perhaps discovering new things. And in fact, going back to Thomas Kuhn's structure of scientific revolutions, so he said this idea that science works within a paradigm and scientists increment, enlarge that paradigm until a moment that you have a revolution. I think if you have the hope of creating that revolution, that a really significant change of thinking, then maybe these shortcuts are essentially keeping you within the sphere of incremental science, within the existing paradigm, just by repeating and perhaps finding the incremental question that other people have already advanced a bit and you contribute a bit. Maybe it's good at the beginning, you know, but I think we have to aspire to do good science that doesn't ne- doesn't need any
3: shortcuts. I completely agree with Vanessa. In writing a proposal, your argument for your idea to link these two disciplines to solve a problem that other which could not be solved, it's your job to be able to do that, right? You're excited about this. I can tell you would be excited about it. It's something that you believe in and then you've got to sell it to the reviewers why it's so important acknowledging that you could have a reviewer in only economics and how do you make sure that what you're conveying about ecology is understandable and that's Mm -hmm. tough but if you can do it well and you have a strong argument you're set in a way because your your proposal will already stand out because you're doing something different and trying to to break down barriers. We just submitted this multi-million research grant to NSF, and we had so many different types of disciplines on it. Atmospheric scientists, from people studying tornadoes and lightning and hurricanes, all the way to social scientists who want to do qualitative research on those topics and the impacts to people and economists. And then, of course, I want to see how those can impact human health. My first pass through of it was there was a lot of kind of asking people what this means and then figuring out ways together that we can write it so that the reviewers would understand it, knowing we were submitting to multiple programs and we would have this type of reviewer and this type of reviewer. So we still needed to check certain boxes to make sure they knew that we were experts in these areas but also use a language that was not inappropriate or Coming off as like there's no way they could understand that sentence or showing off in a way too by by using way too much jargon. That's usually on the forefront of my mind reading interdisciplinary proposals. Over do I understand it myself? (laughs) Working between the disciplines, um, if and if it's too heavy in one way, trying to rewrite it in a way that is easier to read and would make sense. And if it's really hard to do that, you can always say, for example and then give an example of what that looks like in the real world.
4: Yeah, that's that's fantastic advice. And the fact that an interdisciplinary component in the proposal gives you an advantage and your proposal stands out. I think that I very much agree with that. But the the one thing that is interdisciplinary proposals sometimes fail, let's say, is the the dimension of feasibility because when a reviewer looks at a proposal, they would they want to be excited by the question, but also they want to be sure that you can Do this. So for an interdisciplinary researcher to do an interdisciplinary work, you have to demonstrate that you have diverse skills. Because a lot of programs of training are very discipline focused. It may be that you are not able to demonstrate those skills. So thinking whether you can demonstrate those skills is, is key. Jennifer's approach is very good. Make a big team with very good people that can come together and talk and dialogue. And that's the best way to do interdisciplinary work and make friends. If you are at a stage where your proposal is only going to be you, then you have to think about how you can bring in different skills and different um, forms of expertise. So often, for example, in early career interdisciplinary proposals, you see people who Say I'm going to do my work on uh, environmental sciences, but I have this political economy component. So I'm going to have a mentor on political economy who would verify and check whatever I do. And then you explain that you will have, perhaps sometime have a provision. So in, you are in Germany, right? So in a Marie Curie proposal, you will have space to provide information about what kind of mentoring and what kind of training you need to make sure that you get those additional skills that you have or you don't have
2: so
1: as early career researchers that's something that we constantly face right we want to do an n number of things when I say you probably know this about me as well at some point you are also bound by time you're bound by your career stage you're bound by the need to maybe potentially get a permanent position at some point and at that point of time you're going to have to maybe strategize where you publish how you publish what you publish and being an interdisciplinary scholar that's probably
3: again something that's a bit more challenging for us this question of, you know, boundaries and being motivated and being passionate is, is an important one. It's often returning to your main focus or your main purpose or your why. Some people would say, and that might be, okay, I need to finish my PhD at this time. I know my topic. I know what I need to do to get there. If your goal is to get there within a certain period, you, you might want to kind of stay in your lane, but strategize certain projects you want to work on, because in the future, that's of interest to you for a new position or a permanent position. And I think that's okay. But of course, like, talking with your supervisor about it is important. They're a mentor to you that they can help you make decisions because you are going to get really excited and passionate about certain things and it's figuring out what makes sense at the time, what can be held for later, what's going to get you to where you really want to be. And it's really easy to get off track. Sometimes a nice piece of advice is to you know, put right in front of your desk when you look up, like this is what I'm doing, this is my goal, this is my overarching next step or where I want to be in two years. And if you feel like you're getting off track or being pulled too many ways or getting excited about too many different things, you can look at it and kind of pull yourself back in. It's not a negative thing to be excited and motivated about things. But like you said, sometimes you have to set your own boundaries to be able to get there. And that's really tough. And so having plans to say no, because oftentimes we say no, it doesn't mean we want to don't want to do it. It just means we might not be able to at the time and that's okay that's tough to do and as an early career scientist you might get asked to do a little bit more than than you can manage figuring out having a plan even if it's you don't say yes or no right away but you say something like let me get back to you on that. It can help because it gives you a chance to think about it. And then maybe it, <laughs> if you really don't want to do it, you can figure that out. Within academia, there's less guardrails in until you get to the time where you're like, okay, what did I do that's going to you know advance my promotion or tenure? You might find yourself in a position where there are a lot of guardrails and you have to stay within them. So if you get hired in a postdoc position and it's for this specific project and you have to have these specific goals and targets hit, by a certain point based on the grant you're on, that gives you boundaries, which is important. It happens quick, especially in a postdoc. If it's only one or two years. So, so that can be handy. And, and if if that kind of thinking or project management strategy is helpful for you, then it nothing stops you from doing that with your own, you know, PhD in terms of planning a timeline and what targets to hit when. Quick example of kind of where I got put back in my lane, so to say, in my postdoc. I worked for the government. After about four months there, I I was getting excited and got to go to different meetings. And as a postdoc, you tend to be on the forefront of the literature. And I had someone from a different division in the government ask me to work on a project that was outside of my division. And I was like, sure. (laughs) And my advisor heard of that and essentially told me my motivation will hurt me in the government. And it was at that point that I went, all right, well, after my postdoc was done or my first contract, I did not renew it. And I was like, I'm back in academia now because that was hard to hear that it was essentially do this and and you can't think bigger. I think that can happen in some positions and that that works for some people. Some people are like, great, I don't want to do any more than I have to. That was an eye opener um, or a turning point for me thinking where I want to go and what I want to do. And um, it definitely had me starting to look for different positions, realizing stay in my lane, do what I'm supposed to do here, get these papers out, and then that's gonna be, you know that's what I needed to do to advance my career. I
4: never thought of myself, oh, I, I'm going to, these are the steps I have to take. I rather thought, this is what I want to do. <laughs> and then I followed that. Perhaps the, the crucial moment in my career was when, when I finished my PhD and I decided what I wanted to do. And I, also I did my PhD based in the government and at that moment of the postdoc, I had the chance of getting a postdoc. Once I was in academia, I felt comfortable, and I just continued doing what I liked. I'm not sure if that works for everyone, <laughs> and how many publications you need uh, to get tenure. Uh, I don't know. I just uh, seem to to do things as they came, and I always enjoy them. And I am though strategic intellectually, because I think this is the question that matters to me. How am I going to research it? And then I try to put the different blocks to answer that question. I think that's very important because some of the intellectual projects that I've developed, they have taken me years to develop. I don't think you start an intellectual project saying, oh, this is what I'm going to say, but oh, I'd like to know more about this. So in my book uh, on urban energy landscapes, that took me six years to write. I mean, it's a lot of strategy that goes into that. But I think that's much more fruitful strategy a strategy about, oh, I need to publish in this journal. I, I, I'm not sure that's that important because the moment you accept that as important, then you are contributing to that disciplinary kind of institution building. It's us who builds those institutions. Uh, institutions are not made by individuals, but they are performed by individuals. I do endorse something that Jennifer said. I think it's very right. It's like when you're doing your PhD, you have your supervisor. You have that help. So use it. Let your supervisor put boundaries and let your supervisor guide you and be flexible. Interdisciplinarity is also about flexibility, right? It's about what you are uh, willing to accept. And the ability to say no is something that you are going to need your whole career. Although we all seem to be very bad at it. You <laughs> after a lot of experience saying yes wow. and regretting that later. When Jennifer was talking so cogently about this topic, I was thinking about Jack Halberstam who is a queer theorist, uh, uh, so absolutely fantastic. And they do discuss uh, disciplinarity and disciplinary institutions as something that constrains and creates power in academia and creates differentials and hierarchies and, and different forms of access. And, and then he says, this is what we have to challenge ourselves. And I really like that. And, and then comes with this very nice phrase of saying, I'm here at the university and explains the trajectory that this academic followed to drop out of university, then came back, then became this very famous academic. He says, I'm here and I invite you to abuse this hospitality that academics and universities give us to really challenge what they are and to really tell universities that they have to go out and and help our societies and make our societies better and, and address inequalities and address Questions of
2: power and hierarchy. Wow. One thing's for certain after being on this episode and listening to both of you speak. Thank you, Jenny. Thank you, Vanessa. I am incredibly excited to be an interdisciplinary scientist. I think we often have doubts and can be working on a publication or uh, applying for funding or thinking about, am I going to have a job in the future? But what both of you have shared has given me confidence that. If we ask questions that are interesting and kind of follow our passion and work with people who we enjoy working with and who are different than us, then we're going to at least have a lot of fun with the research we do and uh, and probably be okay. I do want to end with our favorite question. So this is a question we ask everybody. And we ask you to just share one of your epic fails with us.
4: I have many, many, (laughs) many. The most embarrassing was a presentation I did uh, in a conference on urban transformations in Oxford. That was really awful. But I have excuse for that one because I I had had like a stomach upset the whole evening and I should have said I couldn't do it because I was really, really ill. But I'm going to share with you a truly shameful one. Uh, Like, uh, but... uh, so it doesn't go from here, no, from this podcast, <laughs> which it will be publicly shared and so on. <laughs> no, but an, an epic fail. So uh, this was uh, what I thought was going to be my best ever paper, thinking about landscapes and energy transitions. I wanted to do a whole new conceptualization of it. It was rejected after a round of reviews with quite decent reviews. Uh, So I I was a bit disappointed, but I liked the reviews, and I said, okay, i I repeat it. So I resubmitted it, and it came with a round of reviews. And I thought, oh, I can answer, return it. I resubmitted it or whatever, and it went through four rounds of corrections. And at the fourth round, the editor had changed for some reason, and the new editor told me, that he wouldn't send it there again and it was rejected. There was only one, there was uh, some comment from the editor and there was one review saying, this paper is okay, doesn't have too many faults, and all the comments have been addressed. This is still not of sufficient quality. And this is something that uh, I think a lot of interdisciplinary researchers find. It's like they are told, this is not of sufficient quality, but what is sufficient quality? What is this golden standard that you have to hit?
3: Anyway, I love your question. Yeah, this is a hard question. And like Vanessa said, I mean, there's so many failures. We have way more failures than successes and and, and it spans different things, right? Like, Is it a, a journal article getting desk rejected? Is it not feeling like you're giving enough support to your students or giving too much it's you're always kind of questioning and and trying to to pivot and prevent failures from happening but also learn from different failures i'm trying i was trying to think of a, a failure that had an interdisciplinary bent to it and i think i have one hopefully it's a it's a hopeful lesson learned for people and, and it was for me at my previous position in san diego i was in this joint position between, uh, in climate and health, but I was in two departments. So I was hired in two departments to do this interdisciplinary job. Uh, it was between public health and, and um, Scripps, oceanography, but I was in the climate space. So I was bridging climate and health. That was what I was hired to do. V- very exciting, right? But then learned with my mentors in each department, I'm still expected to publish in the journals that they colleagues and each department would recognize, which was really tough to swallow and then try to do because for the public health department, I had the top public health journals, extremely hard to get into. And I had never published in them before. And so I had this one paper ready to go out that I led that I obviously we think all our papers are just the best and Such an important topic, and and they all are on important topics. But I think it got rejected three times in these higher end journals I was trying to get into, and I was tweaking it and changing the message around to fit in with the journal, and it was really tough, a roller coaster in a way. And and then you feel embarrassed when your co authors get these messages like, oh, desk reject, or you get feedback, and it's, I mean, you can use the feedback from the reviewers, but it was still Rejected And that was really, really, really tough. And so after that long process, finally, we found a, a, a journal that we thought it actually fit in with. And I emailed the editor and I said, this is what it's on. And he was like, that would be great. Go for it. And it went through two or three rounds of review with that journal but it got published. In that process, if I go look back to my different iterations of the paper, it improved substantially with the different reviews that we got, which is great. Um, that's what reviews supposed to do, right? It's supposed to re- improve the article, it ended up getting published and then picked up by media outlets around the world. I don't think it's been cited that much, but it has the one of the highest alt metrics, meaning it's been read by the the general public more often, the news, the media getting on um, Twitter and, and whatnot to, to, to make a bigger impact. Advocacy groups picked it up and were able to use it to advance their goals. And it got some award for like the top 10 most like, downloaded papers in Taylor and Francis. And, uh, and, and the way this started off, right, was an epic failure. Just me like falling down, getting back up, falling down, getting back up. And the way it turned out, I wouldn't have it any other way. It's interesting thinking at the time (laughs) you're sad. I think there's these steps of grief when you get a paper rejected, right? You go through like, oh, those reviewers don't know what they're talking about. And then you go through sadness and grief and then you come back again and you're like, okay, I'm going to get this published somewhere else. So I, I think that's important to remember. And yeah, the first time you get a paper rejected is really, really hard. And same same with grants. You're writing a grant you're like this is the best idea ever you're so excited about it and you should always feel that way submitting a grant if you're not excited and don't want to do the work maybe you shouldn't submit it and then you get it back and it's rejected and they didn't like it and you just it's so hard <laughs> um but those failures will help you grow
1: The Navigating Interdisciplinarity podcast series is brought to you by a working group belonging to the Early Career Network of the International Association for the Study of Commons. We are the IASC ecn For more information on our activities and to join a vibrant network, do check us out at IASC-Commons.org. That's IASC-Commons.org. Thank you, everyone. Until next time. Bye-bye.